Hi, everyone, and welcome to Becoming Lincoln. Episode 14, This Weary Mortal Round. Abraham Lincoln liked absurd stories, but he hated looking ridiculous. And if anyone ever brought up what he once called that jumping scrape, he steered the conversation elsewhere. It started with the Illinois State Bank. Lincoln spent much of his career in the General Assembly defending this institution against the Democrats' political and ideological assaults. Lincoln saved the bank in 1839 getting the legislature to allow it to suspend payments in hard coin through the end of the next legislative session. A special session was called in late November 1840. Once it ended, the bank would have to pay deposits in hard coin. The bank would die in that scenario because there wasn't enough hard coin to do so. To stave this off, the minority Whigs stayed away from the session to prevent a quorum, a requirement for adjournment. Lincoln, the minority leader, and Whig representative Joseph Gillespie stayed behind to demand roll calls whenever the majority moved to leave. The Democrats, sniffing out the strategy, first sent out the House's sergeant-at-arms to round up absent Whigs. When they failed at this, they summoned all the Democrats back, pulling some out of sickbeds, to create a quorum. Losing their heads, Lincoln and the Whigs then voted present on the next roll call. When they realized their mistake, Lincoln, Gillespie, and another Whig named Eshael Grimsley ran for the door to the chamber, which the sergeant had bolted. The only other egress was a first-story window. So, the window was opened, and Lincoln, Gillespie, and Grimsley jumped out. But it was too late. The Democrats called Signy die, ending the session and signing the bank's death sentence. As historian David Herbert Donald wrote, The Democrats, quote, ridiculed Mr. Lincoln and his flying brethren and noted that his celebrated leap caused him no harm because his legs reached nearly from the window to the ground. Gillespie wrote later that Lincoln regretted the incident, quote, as he deprecated everything that savored of the revolutionary. Embarrassed as he was, the jump was in line with the manic behavior Lincoln had displayed throughout the year as he frantically fought for the Whig cause. But the end of the campaign robbed him of something that could consume his energy, and he soon showed an unhealthy lack of composure, as many of the personal, professional, and political bonds Lincoln forged in Springfield snapped in the space of a few weeks. It served as a prelude to the most dangerous emotional crisis of Lincoln's life. The first break came with Lincoln's friend and bedmate, Joshua Speed. Speed faced his own turmoil. His father had died in Kentucky the previous March, and with the economic depression still gripping the country, the family farm suffered. The Speeds urged Joshua to come home to sort things out. Speed was torn. He wrote to his sister, quote, I have many friends here, and while I have not done anything to rank me among the first men here, either for mind or money, I feel confident that I have credit for as much talent as for one with as little age, experience, credit, or capital 
as I had to start upon. Speed's choice was further complicated by the arrival of a beautiful 18-year-old named Matilda Edwards. Historian Joshua Shank writes, quote, She turned heads with her willowy figure and her blonde hair that hung in curls, like the wind at play with sunbeams, said one admirer. Edwards moved into the mansion where Mary Todd lived. The two may have shared a bed. Edwards enchanted many men in Springfield. Todd wrote that Edwards, quote, Fascinations have drawn a concourse of Bow and Company round us. According to one account, Matilda Edwards received 22 offers of marriage. Speed also fell under Edwards' spell. In a letter to his sister, Speed wrote, quote, A mind as clear as a bell, a voice bewitchingly soft and sonorous, and a smile so sweet, lovely, and playful, and countenance and soul shining through it. All these charms combined in one young lady, if nothing else interposed, would be enough to keep me here, would they not? Mary Todd, always a perceptive observer, wrote that month, quote, Mr. Speed's ever-changing heart, I suspect, in offering its young affections on her shrine, with some others. One of those others was Abraham Lincoln. A contemporary writer claimed that Lincoln declared, quote, If he had it in his power, he would not have one feature in her face altered. He thinks she is so perfect. The depths of his attraction are hard to measure. Speed later said that, quote, Lincoln did love Miss Edwards, but it seems likely he kept his feelings toward Edwards tightly corked. Elizabeth Edwards, Mary Todd's sister, once asked Matilda if Lincoln pursued her. Matilda replied, quote, On my word, he never mentioned such a subject to me. He never even stooped to pay me a compliment. But even if they were just a passing fancy, Lincoln's feelings for Edwards may have confused his feelings toward Mary Todd. As we said last week, the state of their relationship at this time is not clear. Mary had more than a few men at her own shrine, and Lincoln probably suffered the same anxieties with Todd that he did with most young, eligible women. His old doubts about providing for a family may have flared up after the November election, which ended his hopes of a well-paying federal position. Elizabeth Edwards, Mary Todd's sister, said Lincoln, quote, doubted his ability and capacity to support a wife. There were other pressures. Elizabeth Edwards and her husband Ninian objected to Abraham marrying Mary. Elizabeth later told William Herndon she thought Mary and Abraham were incompatible. She said, quote, Mr. Edwards and myself told Lincoln and Mary not to marry. They were raised differently and had no feelings alike. Finally, Lincoln the lawyer knew well the legal ramifications of formally committing. As historian Jean Baker wrote, quote, In 19th century America, a matrimonial pledge was as legally bonding a contract as any commercial agreement, and the right of the rejected to seek damages was familiar litigation. Usually it was the female, seduced or not, who brought a breach of promise suit and sought damages. The traditional story, first told by William Herndon and Jesse Wyke, was that Lincoln and Todd planned to marry on January 1st, 1841, and that Abraham 
never showed up to the ceremony. This didn't happen, but what did happen is unclear. One theory stems from the memories of Joshua Speed and the Edwards. During the special legislative session in early December, Lincoln, enamored with Matilda Edwards, wrote a letter to Todd telling her he did not love her. As he recounted it to William Herndon, Speed told Lincoln to burn the letter, saying, quote, Words are forgotten, not noticed in private conversation. But once you put your words in writing, they stand as a living and eternal monument against you. But Lincoln went to see her. Whether he handed Mary the letter or told her directly, the message got across. Speed said, quote, She rose and said, The deceiver shall be deceived, woe is me, alluding to a young man she fooled. Lincoln drew her down on his knee, kissed her, and parted. Soon after, Mary wrote a letter to another correspondent quoting Rokeby, a long narrative poem by Sir Walter Scott. In the poem, a common man woos a noblewoman named Matilda. When the line says, quote, A doublet of Lincoln green, no more of me you know, my love, no more of me you know. In her letter, Mary wrote, quote, Lincoln's, Lincoln green, have gone to dust. Joshua Shank writes, quote, Using clever shorthand, Todd may have been saying that a connection between her and Lincoln had dissolved, and that the commoner was now tied to Matilda Edwards. As we've mentioned, though, there's nothing in Lincoln and Todd's surviving correspondence with others to suggest they were engaged. Lincoln, with his reticent nature, wouldn't disclose something like that. But as historian Martin Quitt notes, Todd dropped no hint of a marriage agreement with Lincoln in her letters that year with her best friend, Mercy Levering. In addition, these stories all make Mary Todd the passive target of Abraham's shifting moods. But that wasn't Mary Todd, who, if anything, was an assertive woman. As we've said, Mary had other suitors besides Lincoln, including Stephen Douglas. In the past, there's been a tendency to assume Todd saw these men simply to make Abraham jealous. Herndon, said Douglas, quote, was unremitting in his attentions to the lady, promenading the streets arm in arm with her, frequently passing Lincoln, and in every way he made plain his intention to become his rival. But a simpler explanation is that Mary had made no special commitment to Lincoln in 1840, seeing him as she did anyone else. Quitt argues that Lincoln, with his lack of experience with women, misinterpreted their relationship and grew jealous of the other men. In that light, the letter could have been a ham-fisted attempt to make Mary choose, with some of the macho bluster we saw with Lincoln and Mary Owens. If so, Lincoln badly underestimated Todd. Quitt writes, quote, if, however, he initiated a breakup because he resented Todd's flirtation with another suitor, and she, in turn, was offended and told him to leave, then the termination of their courtship might well have led to his despair and would have been much more in tune with her reaction. He would have felt like a fool for having caused the split and then become more and more upset in the following days when he blamed himself for having acted on his suspicions of her being faithless to him. Quick goes on to say that Mary, quote, 
took umbrage at his having the nerve to presume they had an understanding that precluded her from seeing other men. Whatever his intention in confronting her that fateful day, she turned the tables on him. I think Quitt's theory better reflects what we know of Lincoln's difficulties with women and Todd's personality and social standing at the time. But however it happened, Mary and Abraham had split. Around this time, Lincoln turned his attention to another female. He had known Sarah Rickard since he arrived in Springfield in 1837. She was a sister-in-law of William Butler, with whom he boarded. Rickard later recalled that, in the late 1830s, Lincoln would take her to what she called little entertainments, like plays. Then, sometime in the winter of 1840-1841, Lincoln proposed marriage. Rickard said, quote, As was his custom, he brings quotations from the Bible how but Sarah will become Abraham's wife. Now, it's possible this was some kind of lighthearted humor from Lincoln. At this stage in life, he didn't really take the Bible seriously. But it was strange behavior because Sarah Rickard was just 16 years old. She turned him down, later saying, quote, I always liked him as a friend, but you know, his peculiar manner and his general deportment would not be likely to fascinate a young girl just entering the society world. The weather in Illinois turned bitterly cold at the end of 1840. Snow and wind tormented the state. On January 1st, 1841, Speed sold his share of the general store, an event Lincoln later referred to as, quote, that fatal 1st of January. Needing new accommodations, Lincoln moved in with his friend William Butler. On January 2nd, Lincoln, whose legislative attendance was usually excellent, missed roll call in the House. Over the next few days, he missed more votes. He was present on January 8th when a representative named William Bissell introduced a resolution commemorating the anniversary of the Battle of New Orleans. During his comments, Bissell made some allusion to the jumping scrape the previous month. Lincoln immediately rose in anger. As the Democratic Illinois State Register wrote, quote, Mr. Lincoln said that as to jumping, he should jump when he pleased, and no one should hinder him. The following day, during a reapportionment debate, Lincoln made some oddly self-pitying remarks. Speaking to the chamber, Bissell claimed that old women were partial to the number nine. Now, remember that Lincoln had been part of a group of legislators called the Long Nine. A newspaper account reported Lincoln replying, quote, A few years since, it will be recollected by the House, that the delegation from this county were dubbed, by way of eminence, the Long Nine, and by way of further distinction, he had been called the longest of the nine. Now, said Mr. L., I dare to say to my friend from Monroe that if any woman, old or young, ever thought there was any peculiar charm in this distinguished specimen of number nine, I have as yet been so unfortunate as not to have discovered it. Lincoln kept missing votes, and then he disappeared for nearly a week, taking to his bed. Orville Browning, a friend who was also staying with the butlers, 
later said Lincoln, quote, was so much affected as to talk incoherently and to be delirious to the extent of not knowing what he was doing. His behavior had gone from uncharacteristic to outright terrifying. Elizabeth Edwards used the words crazy and insanity to describe him during this time, claiming, quote, In his lunacy, he declared he hated Mary and loved Miss Edwards. This is true, yet it was not his feelings. A crazy man hated those he loved when at himself. James Matheny later told William Herndon that he feared Lincoln would commit suicide. Speed said, quote, Lincoln went crazy, had to remove razors from his room, take away all the knives and other such dangerous things. It was terrible. For more than a century, historians thought the falling out with Mary Todd led to Lincoln's collapse. Scholars today, with a better understanding of psychology and mental illness, are more cautious. As Joshua Shank writes, quote, However urgently we try to find clear narrative lines, X stress led to Y reaction, the picture is never that clear. In the midst of a depressive crisis, the question, what's wrong, can be infuriating because the answer in the depressive's mind is everything. Even the assumption that stresses lead to reaction is problematic because very often the case is reversed. We might feel bad because something has gotten screwed up. We might screw things up because we feel so bad. Or both. If we look for contributing factors, the split with Mary Todd was probably one. But so is Speed's departure and Lincoln's growing disappointment in the legislature. The cold snap of the new year may also have brought him down, as the rainy weather did after Anne Rutledge's death in 1835. Lincoln later wrote that, quote, Exposure to bad weather could cause feelings of inadequacy, adding, quote, My experience clearly proves to be very severe on defective nerves. Anson Henry, a local doctor who Lincoln helped run for Justice of the Peace a few years earlier, was called in. Treatments for depression at this time were physical, differing little from what a physician of the 13th century might have recommended. As Joshua Shank writes, if Henry followed what was considered a regular course of treatment for someone suffering melancholy, he would have first bled Lincoln. Ipecacs and purgatives might have followed. Doctors were told to keep food from depressives, and Henry may have ordered a fast. He might also have rubbed mustard on Lincoln, or, in the middle of a cold January, plunged him into freezing baths. As Shank writes, quote, Most of these treatments were physically punishing. Mustard rubs produced terrific pain. Black pepper drinks were like a bomb in the stomach. Mercury, the principal substance used to purge the stomach and the bowels, poisoned the body. The torturous quality of these treatments did not diminish them in the eyes of physicians. To the contrary, the more a patient suffered, the more evidence that the body was being stirred up and cleaned out. Unless a doctor was imaginative enough to buck conventional wisdom, treatment was hell. In a letter to Stewart on January 20th, Lincoln asked his partner to get Henry an appointment to a local postmaster position, saying the doctor was, quote, necessary to my existence. He concluded quickly, quote, I have not sufficient composure to write a longer letter. 
Three days later, his agony burst out in a follow-up letter. Lincoln wrote, quote, I am now the most miserable man living. If what I feel were equally distributed to the whole human family, there would be not one cheerful face on the earth. Whether I shall ever be better, I cannot tell. I awfully forebode, I shall not. To remain as I am is impossible. I must die or be better, it appears to me. News of Lincoln's collapse spread through Springfield. The Illinois State Register took a mean-spirited swipe at Lincoln's indisposition, but nearly everyone else was sympathetic. On January 21st, a local woman wrote her brother, saying she had been, quote, very distressed for Lincoln, adding she heard, quote, he had two cat fits and a duck fit. A week later, a woman named Jane Bell wrote, quote, the doctors say he came within an inch of being a perfect lunatic for life. He was perfectly crazy for some time, not able to attend to his business at all. By February, Lincoln had emerged, looking haggard and emaciated. Bell said, quote, They say he does not look like the same person, which Shanks suggests reflects the torture Lincoln endured at Henry's hands. He returned to the legislature and the courts, taking up a regular caseload in February and March. John Todd Stewart's long absences in Washington meant Lincoln shouldered more of the caseload and made less money. With Stewart's re-election to Congress that November, both men may have sensed a time to move on. Soon, Lincoln found a new partner. In his January 23rd letter to Stewart, Lincoln wrote that, quote, If I could be myself, I would rather remain at home with Judge Logan. Judge Logan was Stephen Logan, who we met all the way back in our first episode. Stephen Logan was 41 years old in early 1841, nine years Lincoln Sr. He was an aggressively sloppy person who wore his clothes loosely and always seemed to have tobacco juice running down the sides of his mouth. But attorneys in Springfield, including John Todd Stewart, revered his mind and his gift for clearly explaining complicated legal concepts. The Sangamo Journal wrote in 1843 that Logan, quote, is regarded as perhaps the best lawyer in the state and has undoubtedly a fine logical mind. His voice is not pleasant, but he has a most happy faculty of elucidating and simplifying the most obstinate questions. Lincoln was also one of Logan's admirers. Usher Linder later wrote that Lincoln said, quote, it was his highest ambition to become as good a lawyer as Logan. A native of Kentucky, Logan had served as a judge in Springfield. Lincoln tried his first case before the older man. But unhappy with judicial salaries, Logan resigned to go into private practice, where he would make a fortune. He first partnered with Lincoln's friend, the English orator Edward Baker, but the two clashed over fees and parted. Logan had already crossed paths with Lincoln as an attorney. They worked together on the Truett murder case, and they were on opposite sides in three different cases. Lincoln won all three, likely due to his jury skills. Rather than resent it, Logan saw potential in Lincoln. He later said, quote, Baker was a brilliant man, but very negligent, while Lincoln was growing all the time from the time I first knew him. 
Logan emerges from the record as an ornery character, who might have been difficult to deal with on a daily basis. But the two complemented each other, and Logan and Lincoln became good friends. Logan needed younger politicians to help him with his caseload. The older attorney was a politician, but not an especially good one. Logan's harsh voice hurt him in front of audiences. So he turned first to Baker and then Lincoln because they could connect with people. As Logan later wrote, quote, Both he and Baker were exceedingly useful to me in getting the goodwill of a jury. For Lincoln, an unseasoned attorney whose knowledge of the law, Logan said, quote, was very small when I took him in. Logan's skills provided an unmatched opportunity. Logan helped Lincoln improve his legal writing and might have helped fill in the gaps left in his self-education, though as historian Brian Dirk notes, hard evidence for this is lacking. But, as Dirk writes, quote, Logan wanted a partner whose speaking abilities could complement his research and reasoning talents. Logan had the technical expertise in the law that Lincoln lacked. Lincoln was a more winsome and appealing trial lawyer. It was a sound foundation for a partnership. It was not an equitable partnership. Where Stewart and Lincoln split fees 50-50, Logan kept two-thirds of the income that came into the firm. But they stayed busy. But Lincoln was still unwell. He seems to have been asocial that spring and summer. James Conkling, a friend of Lincoln's, wrote to his fiancée in March, quote, I suppose he will now endeavor to drown his cares among the intricacies and perplexities of the law. No more will the merry peal of laughter ascend high in the air to greet his listening and delighted ears. Alas, I fear his shrine will now be deserted and that he will withdraw himself from the society of us inferior mortals. Mary Todd wrote in June that she had not met him, meaning Lincoln, quote, in the gay world for months, and added that, quote, I would that the case were different, that he would once more resume his station in society. But Lincoln wanted to get away. His January letters to Stewart alluded to a potential diplomatic posting, and on March 5th, the congressman recommended Lincoln for a job in Columbia, an appointment that never came through. Before Speed left Springfield in May, he made Lincoln promise to see him in the Bluegrass State. Once Lincoln had wrapped up his business with the courts in early August, he made the journey to see Speed and his family at their estate called Farmington. Farmington, as Sidney Blumenthal writes, was a 14-room brick mansion with high ceilings and floors. It sat on an estate Joshua Schenck describes as, quote, a private village, where the main crop was hemp. This was a plantation, and Lincoln was given a slave who served as his valet. If Lincoln objected to this, he left no record. The Speeds welcomed Lincoln with open arms and treated him as another family member. They found his lack of table manners endearing, as well as his bashful self-awareness of it. He played games with Speed's sister Mary. Lincoln later wrote to her, quote, You and I were something of cronies while I was at Farmington, and that while there, I once was under the necessity of shutting you up in a room to prevent your committing an assault and battery upon me. Lincoln also took daily walks with his friend Joshua, who was doing what he could to ease Lincoln's pain. 
Yet, as Speed noted, Lincoln often seemed, quote, moody and hypochondriac during the visit, unable to shake his gloom. Joshua Speed's mother, Lucy, observed him in this state one day. As Speed said, quote, One morning, when he was alone, she, with a woman's instinct, being much pained at his deep depression, which she had observed, presented him a Bible, advising him to read it, to adopt its precepts, and pray for its promises. As Joshua Shank notes, Lincoln was more receptive to Lucy's gift than he might have been had it come from one of the preachers he knew in his youth. Lucy Speed also suffered depression, and her theology was nothing like the emotional shouting of the Indiana woods. As Schenck writes, quote, Her family was theologically liberal, attending the church of a famous Unitarian minister named James Freeman Clark, who was based in Louisville in the 1830s. Such an affinity with Lincoln, on top of her own experience with melancholy, may have made her an effective messenger. Still, Lincoln could not hide his skepticism. He later wrote to Mary Speed that he intended to read Lucy's Bible, but added, quote, I doubt not that it is really, as she says, the best cure for the blues, could one but take it according to the truth. At the beginning of September, Lincoln returned to Springfield, this time with Joshua Speed in tow. On the steamboat, he saw a coffle of 12 African Americans chained together. Lincoln wrote to Mary Speed, quote, A small iron clevis was around the left wrist of each, and this fastened to the main chain by a shorter one at a convenient distance from the others, so that the Negroes were strung together precisely like so many fish upon a trot line. In this condition, they were being separated forever from the scenes of their childhood, their friends, their fathers and mothers, and brothers and sisters, and many of them from their wives and children, and going into perpetual slavery, where the lash of the master is proverbially more ruthless and unrelenting than any other wear. And yet, describing them to the young woman that September, Lincoln said they were, quote, the most cheerful and apparently happy creatures on board, and described them joking or playing cards. Lincoln concluded, quote, How true it is that God tempers the wind to the shorn lamb, or in other words, that he renders the worst of human conditions tolerable, while he permits the best to be nothing more than tolerable. The most common explanation for this astonishingly dim and shallow perception of slavery is that Lincoln, mired in misery, only thought of his own pain. As Charles Strozier writes, quote, Lincoln seemed unable to go beyond his own misery and reacting to the boat scene. He failed to distinguish his sense of dejection over his conflicted relationship with a woman who still loved him from the depths of sadness those slaves on the chain had reached. All human misery was only a mirror of his own unhappiness, and feigned gaiety, or suppressed misery, a behavior lesson for him to learn. In later years, the memory would torment Lincoln, and he would describe it as such to Joshua Speed. But at this time, the picture of happy and contented slaves Lincoln paints, even if he was concealing a deeper emotion, reflects only white fantasies. As he returned to law and politics in Springfield, Lincoln found himself having to nurse his friend back to health. While in Kentucky, Joshua Speed had started courting a woman named Fanny Henning, a neighbor of the Speeds who had been orphaned as a girl. 
The historian David Herbert Donald called her vivacious, and Lincoln described Henning in letters as, quote, one of the sweetest girls in the world. He said she had heavenly black eyes, and added that Fanny was someone who had, quote, a tendency to melancholy, though he quickly added that this, quote, is a misfortune, not a fault. Speed and Henning had been seeing each other during Lincoln's trip to Kentucky. Lincoln once, and possibly twice, traveled with Speed to meet Fanny and see John Williamson, her uncle and guardian. As Donald wrote, quote, Williamson, an ardent Whig, insisted on engaging his visitors in a political discussion. By prearrangement, Lincoln, a diehard Whig, pretended to be a Jacksonian Democrat and ensnared Williamson in such a lengthy political argument that Joshua was able to escape for a few minutes of private conversation with Fanny. Speed spent the fall of 1841 in Springfield, then returned to Kentucky on New Year's Day. When Speed left, he was either engaged to Henning or went to ask for her hand. Joshua appears to have suffered from terrible anxiety that Fanny might reject him, or, worse, that she would accept him, which tore him with self-doubts. Lincoln recognized his friend's fears. In a January 3, 1842 letter to Speed, which Lincoln may have delivered directly, he expressed a fear that Speed, being away from his friends and other distractions, would suffer, quote, that intensity of thought, which will sometimes wear the sweetest idea threadbare and turn it to the bitterness of death. Lincoln went on, mentioning Mary Todd's younger sister, Anne, quote, I know what the painful point with you is, at all times when you are unhappy. It is an apprehension that you do not love her as you should. What nonsense! How came you to court her? Was it because you thought she desired it, and that you had given her reason to expect it? If it was for that, why did not the same reason make you court Anne Todd, and at least twenty others of whom you can think? and to whom it would apply with greater force than to her. Did you court her for her wealth? Why, you knew she had none. But you say you reasoned yourself into it. What do you mean by that? Was it not that you found yourself unable to reason yourself out of it? Speed's side of the conversation is lost, but in late January, he apparently told Lincoln he feared the day he might see Henning die. Lincoln replied, quote, Why, Speed, if you did not love her, although you might not wish her death, you would most calmly be resigned to it. Perhaps this point is no longer a question with you, and my pertinacious dwelling upon it is a rude intrusion upon your feelings. If so, you must pardon me. You know the hell I have suffered on that point, and how tender I am upon it. You know I do not mean wrong. Charles Strozier sees, quote, a morbid fascination with the destructive potentiality of sex in these exchanges, a symbol of two men who really had no experience with the activity. Joshua Speed and Fanny Henning married on February 15, 1842. The way Strozier describes it, Speed all but leaped out of his nuptial bed to report his experience to Lincoln, writing that he and Fanny, quote, are no more twain but one flesh. Lincoln wrote to Speed ten days later, quote, I tell you, Speed, our forebodings, for which you and I are rather peculiar, are all the worst sort of nonsense. Strozier writes that Speed's triumph here was, quote, the turning point in Lincoln's emotional life. He writes, quote, 
When Speed at last consummated his relationship with Fanny, and the sky did not fall in, Lincoln was liberated from his fear of marriage. Speed experienced what Lincoln could only fantasize about. He served as a kind of emotional proxy for his conflicted friend. Speed thus proved therapeutic. Joshua and Fanny, meanwhile, started a marriage that would last 40 years. They would go on long walks in the woods looking for wildflowers, and Joshua showed a touching devotion to Fanny when they were separated. In one letter, he wrote, quote, I wrote to you yesterday, and today, having some leisure, I will write again, on the principle, I suppose, that where your treasure is, there your heart will go. Fanny apparently sent kind notes to Lincoln and included a violet in one. In thanking the happy couple for it, Lincoln wrote, quote, There is one still unhappy whom I have contributed to make so. That still kills my soul. I cannot but reproach myself for even wishing to be happy while she is otherwise. Lincoln had been through an emotional hell over the previous 15 months. If he was no longer in the depths where he had once found himself, his psyche was still in terrible shape. In his darkness, Lincoln may have thought of Mary and their mutual love of Robert Burns' poetry. Perhaps his mind ambled to lines from one of his favorite poems, A Cotter's Saturday Night. Quote, I've paced much this weary mortal round, and sage experience bids me this declare. If heaven a draught of heavenly pleasure spare, one cordial in this melancholy vale, tis when a youthful, loving, modest pair in others' arms breathe out the tender tale beneath the milk-white thorn that scents the evening gale. Next time, we'll conclude our first season by looking at Abraham and Mary's slow drift back toward each other. We'll also see Lincoln nearly throw his career and life away in a duel of honor.